0: I didn't have this in my message, um, but as we were singing and praying, and, I, and as I've been, I think these passages have been germinating, these disparate passages, I, I think that if I could say that there's, there's one Christ-exalting theme that runs through all this like concrete, pragmatic, decision-making fodder that's in this. If there's one concrete theme in the back of it all, it, it's this truth that's implicit in all these passages, that's quietly the bedrock of all these passages. It's this truth behind and undergirding all these passages is the truth that Jesus Christ really does change lives. He really does give miraculous supernatural power to be new and to not be doomed and faded to the bondage of deception, confusion, lies, addiction, hopelessness. He, he breaks all that stuff. And he gives us power to follow him and to know him and to find the core of who we are in him. He really does it. He borns people again. He makes people new. He gives them power to see him and to treasure him and to follow him. That really brings the deepest meaning and peace to our lives. Jesus Christ has the power to make people new. And I think that's in the backdrop of all we're going to read together. So having said that, let's get into some nooks and crannies here about how do we live with people who walk in the LGBTQ community identities, lifestyles, ideologies, and, and even to some degree, how do we deal with that in our own hearts, in our own families? We'll get into that as we, as we move out to the end of the message. I want to start with this passage in 1 Corinthians 5. It's a well-worn passage among us. Um, it's not like we memorize it, but we've talked about it in, in very different times of the past several years. In this passage, Paul's addressing a problem in the church, in the Corinthian church, where a man has taken his father's wife as his own. And in correcting the church that is happy about this man and proud of their union, Paul is rebuking them. But in doing so, he has to work a bit to explain that the church needs to understand that how they treat their fellow church members is different than how they are to treat the people of the world. I don't know where the confusion came from in Corinth, but it's obviously there or else he wouldn't have said it. And here's what he says in in this passage. This is 1 Corinthians, that's actually should say 1 Corinthians 5. It's my fault, not yours, Ed. But this is from 1 Corinthians 5 and we'll bleed into six. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, just before we go too far in this, when he says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, he's going to be talking about Christians. He's talking about people not who make mistakes and who fail and who struggle with sin. He's talking about people who are unrepentant and who have given themselves wholeheartedly to live in sexually immoral ways, like this man has who's taken his father's bride. It's either his mother. God forbid, or it might be only his stepmother. It's not clear. So he's not talking about all of us who struggle with sin and will for the rest of our lives. He's talking about people who are set and focused and committed to live sexually morally. And he says, but then he makes this qualification, verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. In other words, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy And swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. And that's a gender neutral uh, anachronism. It would be brother and sister. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then listen to what he says now. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those. Oh, I see. Yeah. God judges those outside. Let me say that again. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, I bring this, this is a very basic but important truth that we need to try to get our hands around. I bring this passage up because it's important for us to get straight where the responsibilities are for us and where they are not for us when it comes to how we engage folks who are fully committed to embracing LGBTQ lifestyles. Remember, so there's a brother in this church who is so hardened in sexual immorality, he's a confessing Christian, part of that church, and he's so hardened that Paul says it is time to expel him from the church community. Hoping, of course, that they've made prior appeals and appeals and appeals. Paul says it's time to to kick him out of the church so that he will see, we won't go into the whole passage, but the inference is obvious, so that this man would see how serious his sin was and would turn back to God. But Paul emphasizes here in this passage, as if there was some confusion, that it was not, he's not talking about the people that he calls in the world. It's not non-Christians, but those who had already publicly turned to Christ as their savior, had acknowledged him as their Lord. Those were the people, the church community was to hold accountable together to live in a godly way. That's our job. We've talked about this before. What's one of our main purposes as a church is to see each other across the finish line into the arms of Jesus Christ. That's why people are committed to a local church. Not the only reason, but one of the primary reasons is that it's my job and your job to look over each other and to make sure that we don't give up, that we don't quit on Christ, but that we keep going and not fail to reach the end into the next, into the kingdom fully. But there's confusion here. So he's, he's trying to, make clear and, and look what he does in verse 10. He says explicitly, this is not how are we to treat those in the world who've never come to Christ. We don't expect them to live like Christians. We, in other words, we don't expect people who are not Christians to live like Christians because we can't, because they can't. They can't live like Christians we leave them to God. It is God who will judge them. It is God who will watch over them and deal with them as he sees fit. It's our job to watch over each other, not the barista at Starbucks who doesn't want Jesus and doesn't know Jesus. And he, he, the practical ramifications of this might sound, this passage might sound basic, but the practical ramifications of this are profound. Paul is saying, in effect, don't live in casual, Friendly relationship with people who call themselves your brothers and sisters in Christ in your church, but who are clearly and resolutely refusing to follow Christ. Don't live in casual relationship with them. Warn them, rebuke them, correct them. He's not talking about the world. He says, but don't do that with the world. Otherwise, you'd have to leave it. In other words, I want you in casual relationship and friendships with people in the world who don't follow Jesus who aren't committed to Christ. I want you with them. In other words, this is a call for us to not intentionally ostracize those who don't know Christ or follow his truth concerning biblical sexuality. It's a call not to expect them also or call them to meet God's sexual standards for life until they embrace Christ and receive his Holy Spirit and can follow him. Instead, we're called to befriend them and love them and eat with them. We'll see that in other places. As long as we're not compromising our own walk with Jesus and doing so. In other words, what is implicit in Paul's words is that in other places, it's at the front door of our lives to those who don't know Jesus should not be a message on how they need to right now comply with Jesus' call to sexual purity. The front door of our lives to those who don't know Jesus should not be our demand that they comply with Jesus' call to sexual purity because what they are doing is ethically wrong. What they are doing, if they're not following God's call, and is ethically wrong, but that, it's not our job to judge them, Paul says. It's not our job to reprimand them, walk, walk, watch over them, call them, to re, call them back to live the way that they've, they've acknowledged to live, because they haven't. Our job is to position ourselves via kindness, via respect, via friendship, to be able to share with them the truth about Jesus, how he has changed us, and yes, when the time is right, to share with them his call, to turn to him for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, who alone can enable them to follow him. This practically may mean that we actually refrain from getting into debates in, in a burgeoning relationship with someone who's committed to LGBTQ lifestyle, we may actually need to refrain from getting into debates about sexual morality with them, and, and ask them instead if, if they would let us talk to them about Jesus, about the God. For instance, could, could we, could, as opposed to getting into this debate about that march or that new law, could we? Can I tell you about what Jesus is, is to me? Can I share? What, can I share the Gospel of John with you? Could we look over? a book together on knowing Christ that might even put these issues on the back burner, not to hide them, not to pull bait and switch. But, but the point is we want to help people get to Jesus more than we want to get them to a certain take on LGBTQ issues. And, and I don't say that pejoratively. Like I, you've heard, hopefully you've heard me preach as clearly as I can about LGBTQ issues And that there is a sexual morality that is brewing in our country and nation that is completely contrary to God's will and to God's heart. And and in each of these different places in in your relationships, you have to discern with the Holy Spirit when it's time to talk about certain things and when it's time not to talk about certain things. But I want us to remember that what people need, people who don't have Jesus, what they need is Jesus. Jesus. They need the gospel, which, which we may be able to, in engaging them with the gospel, it, it may be, with discernment and prayer, it may be important to talk about the sexual sin in their lives, but we don't want to leave people with the impression that if they get it right about LGBTQ issues, that they have Jesus and that that's all we care about. We need to think about what does it mean that Paul says that it is not our job to judge the world, it's our job to judge the church. We can befriend and be in relationship and eat meals and have dinner and go to movies with people who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ who've never made a commitment to Christ, who aren't part of our church, we can be with them in their sorrows and hardships and joys and get to know them. And we don't have to be telling them all the time, the way you're living here is wrong, the way you're living here is wrong, the way you're living here is wrong, the way you're living here is wrong. But it's different if we're in the body of Christ and we're committed to Christ and we've suddenly decided that we're going to rebel against God's call in our lives, the God who has given us his Holy Spirit, we have a different responsibility. We have to call each other back to faithfulness to Christ. But with the world, we're looking for opportunities where there might be windows open and doors open to talk about who Jesus is and what he's done And yeah, not to hide, not to, this isn't a message about how to pretend there isn't sin and there isn't judgment and there isn't hell, but to be careful about how and when we bring those things up. Now there's nuance here. There's tension. In 1 Corinthians 10, there's a really interesting passage that I think also speaks to these issues from the other angle. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is addressing the question of eating with unbelievers, who often ate food offered to idols. And the question that's before him is, can Christians eat with people who are living this way? Can Christians go to dinner and have meals with non-Christians who might be eating meat that's offered to idols? And he says in on one hand, yes, you can. And he says, if, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're, not, and you're disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. In other words, again, we see this principle. Don't make it your goal to police their ethics. They bring out the steak and you know that they're a pagan, that they worship pagan gods and that this steak might have been offered to Zeus or whoever, Aphrodite. Don't make it your goal, sitting down at dinner with them, to police their ethics Make it your goal to eat with them. Befriend them as much as you can. Enjoy them. Enjoy their hospitality. It's the same principle we just saw worked out in a different way. But here's the tension. Look at verse 28. Next slide, please. But if someone says to you, as they're presenting this meal to you, this has been offered in sacrifice to Zeus, to Aphrodite, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who, next slide, informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. We'll leave that slide there. In other words, if while they're giving you this meal, they make a point to invite you as the meal is being served to embrace and affirm their sinful worldview. In this case, by saying, we eat this meat to the glory of Zeus. Zeus. Dig in. Paul is saying, at that point, you can't go along. Paul says, now that's not for your conscience. You know, and I know that Zeus doesn't mean anything. He's not real, but it's for them. It's for their conscience. He says, you don't want them reading from you. Someone that they've invited over, probably knowing that you're a follower of Jesus, you don't want them reading from you that idolatry is fine. You're not going out of your way to tell them how sinful their life is. But when they say affirm and bless my life and my sin, you've got to be honest. You can't hide. You have to love them enough to say, hey, I don't mean to be rude. I'm so glad you invited me over and I want that ribeye. It smells so good. But I can't agree with that last part about Zeus. I don't don't believe it's okay to worship Zeus. And I'd be hurting you. And I'd be disloyal to God if I let you think that it was okay by my eating that. And Paul explains what what the whole goal of this interaction is and the the reality of these tensions this way. He says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. In other words, Paul sought to be as loving and open and real and caring as he could with people for the sake of the gospel and their salvation. And he embraced friendships with people outside of Christ as far as he could. But his goal was not his relational comfort, but their salvation. And so there were also times where in order to truly represent Christ to these people, Paul had to make it clear where he stood not in order to be antagonistic, self-righteous, self-exalting, but in order to love them and make clear where spiritual danger was and to be honest. So I believe this helps us understand better how to interact with people outside of the church who who, who embrace the LGBTQ lifestyle or really any lifestyle that's contrary to Christ and first, as we said, we love them with real friendship where we can. We're kind to them. We eat with them. We get coffee with them. We invite them to our homes and go to theirs. If the friendship progresses, we, we listen to our stories. We listen to their stories as well as share ours. And In reading the literature about this issue and dealing with people, what comes up again and again is how important it is to listen how important it is to draw people out and ask questions. Oftentimes that's something they would not expect. Many people who embrace homosexuality or deal with homosexuality and transgenderism have had a very painful internal struggle with their identity. Many have been treated harshly by family and especially in past years mocked by society. This doesn't make homosexuality okay. It doesn't make transgenderism uh, good. But the reality of their suffering is real. And it is right that we would acknowledge that suffering and that we would tell them that we're sorry for how they've suffered. Loving them like Christ means that we seek to know their struggles and affirm real pain they've experienced we can express sorrow for ways they've been ridiculed in sinfully self-righteous ways by others. And it means we should never join in mocking them, whether directly to them or around them. But like the nuance that Paul brought up tells us, there will be moments where If our friendship really progresses, they will have to understand that our faith in Christ and our loyalty to him means we have to say no to certain things that they say are good and right. To use a a well-worn example, it it is most unlikely that any of us could go. I I, I currently can't conceive of it, but maybe you can. I I don't think any of us could go to a so-called gay wedding without implicitly implying that we want to celebrate that wedding and affirm it. God's word is clear that homosexual behavior is sinful and he will not bless a ceremony that will only deepen their resolution to live in that sin and seek to bless it. And so as difficult as it may be, I need to communicate if I'm offered that invitation because I've been growing in a friendship with someone who is same-sex same related and getting married. I need to communicate my love for them, that I respect them as, as a friend made in God's image. I need to thank them for the warm invitation that that, that that, for the warmth that that invitation expresses to me and their trust and their fondness for me. But this is hard. I need to let them know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I can't celebrate something. I can't let them think that I'm going to affirm and bless something that God cannot and will not bless and still do them good. So we have to live in what I've I've thought to call in, in these different situations, these narrow road tensions. The narrow road. We can't fall to the left. We can't fall to the right. The extremes of ostracization, or the extremes of blessing and accepting. We have to live with, but but we have to stand a narrow road. And and this requires at times real nuance. A question we've talked about before that I thought I would address. That I said to you guys just is the issue of pronouns. It's going to become more and more important. And I've listened and read various people about this, and here's my best understanding. If I work at Target, and this is what I mean by by narrow road tensions. If I work at Target and my unbelieving coworker, Dave, tells me that he is transitioning to female and wants to be called Amy, how do I respond? What's a faithful response to Dave and to the Lord? I want to meet him as far as I can without compromising the truth. So I would probably, to be honest with you guys, like, what's my alternative lie? I I would probably call him Amy. As names are somewhat arbitrary, they're not technically associated with gender. And I would most assuredly not go out of my way to keep calling him Dave on purpose. Like, hey, Dave, you know, I want to be called Amy now. Okay, Dave, you know, I'm not, that's not, that's not the, the way that God's calling me to go. I think that's clear. But if he told me that I must now refer to him, not only as Amy, but as she and her, I would do my best to skirt that issue by just calling him Amy or they. I would not refer to them as gender different from their biological. I would not refer to them as a gender different from their biological gender. And this isn't to be antagonistic. It's because lying is wrong. Lying is wrong. And because I don't want the person to think, or the people around them who know me, that I'm a Christian, I don't want them to think that God's authority over our gender isn't real, that his authority over creation isn't real. I don't want them to think that objective truth, like whether someone is a man or a woman, is submissive to cultural dictates that change all the time now. And if this led to a conflict, which it very well could, I would ask them to respect my conscience as best they can as I'm trying to respect them as well as I can. I still remember, like it was yesterday, it was one of the most Surprising and beautiful moments of my life as a dad, Um, and my daughter Marie makes all kinds of mistakes. (laughs) She sins and is not perfect in any way. But when she was nine years old, she had a friend at her school who was um, developing um, developing into an LGBTQ identity, and they were writing a book together because they were buddies. They were writing a, a young adult novel together as some school project or just for fun because they like to write. And her friend said to her, let's bring in a character. Let's bring in a young adult who's uh, a lesbian. And let's you know, talk about their relationship. And, and I, we had no idea this was going on. Uh, Marie only came to us later and told us. And she said to her friend, you are one of my best friends and I respect you so much, and I like you so much, and I respect your convictions about the world. But my convictions are really different, and I don't believe that I can be true to my faith and celebrate a same-sex relationship in a story that we're writing together. And her friend said okay. And they continued to be friends for many years. Their friendship actually grew after that for a while. And then it did become difficult because there was just an awareness that they had worldviews that were so different. It was, it was getting more and more awkward. And so the friend just kind of dropped off. But Coming back to that earlier situation, I, I just thought, who in the world taught you this? Because I don't feel like Jen and I prepared her for that moment. It was just a Holy Spirit blessed thing. But it was so simple. It was so simple. And it's the way that we've been living in America for several centuries at our best. Not always, but at our best. is to say, you're Jewish, you're Muslim, I'm Catholic, I'm Protestant. We're not going to kill each other. We're not going to beat each other up. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about our differences. We'll argue for our positions. But we're going to respect each other. We're going to be at peace with each other. And that's what we, we, we need to be able to do if we're going to survive in this culture together. And I think it, it, it's not going to even help the so-called LGBT community if we give in on that. If I could step out of the... Well, I won't step out of that. All right. But listen, here's, here's the other reality. We're going to have to be prepared to suffer for the Lord in these instances. We're going to have to be prepared to suffer. Because one of the characteristics of LGBTQ ideology as it's popularly, popularly manifesting itself in our nation, is that a, as much as it calls for the tolerance of diverse views and lifestyles, it often does not embrace tolerance itself, particularly concerning biblical sexual morality that has existed for thousands of years. In other words, what you will often find marking LGBTQ ideology is that it demands Not only tolerance, it demands affirmation. In some relationships that you may develop, it it will not be enough that you as a Christian respect the right of a man to believe that he is now a woman. You will also be called to not only respect their right to change genders, you will be required to also agree that this is good and that they truly are now the new gender. Or you may often be considered hateful, phobic, and bigoted. So my point is, sadly, tolerance and respect of differing views does not flow in both directions. They're they're not the only ideology that has done this. All strong ideologies have demanded a larger share of their market than they have a right to, including at times people in the name of Christianity have have, have done. But, but this is obviously an unfair double standard. And I have hope that in the dynamic of an actual friendship, you will meet folks who, who will identify in LGBTQ categories, who will see that double standard, who will admit that real tolerance means that they have to respect your conscience as well as theirs. How are you guys doing? Jess, information overload? It's intense. it's intense? I'm trying to decide if I should park it here. <laughs> Can you guys do arm wrestling? A couple of people? That's not good to lay that on you guys. Let me just pray for a second. Lord, I do pray for wisdom and courage uh, to even know know what what your people can handle and take in terms of this morning. I'll try to close with this. We... I can find in scriptures no certain clear call from Christ, but this call to walk out this tension, that we are called to stay loyal to him at the same time that we live lives of gentleness and respect towards all people. And that this recipe will often, as it often has in history, lead to suffering for us. In first Peter three, the apostle writes this. Can we go forward, Ed? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared in the context of suffering this passage is particularly provoking. In the context of suffering, he says, next slide, please. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, in the context of suffering, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience So that when you are slandered, bigot, hateful, phobic, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, for acting hateful to those who treat you hatefully. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Peter reminds us here that our being brought to Christ, our being brought to God, it required suffering from Christ. Our reconciliation to God involved suffering. And so too now we're called to suffer for the sake of the gospel so that others might be brought to God. We don't suffer for their sins as Jesus did. But we suffer as a testimony that Christ is worth it. That he's worth suffering. And that he is able to give us grace to endure it. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul ends this particular section of the rebuke of the church in Corinth that's slipping back into worldly ways with this reminder of the incredible power of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, That is those who abuse others with their words. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, we're all on that list. We're all of us on that list. Your temptations and battles are here somewhere lying, greed. Addictions, abusive language, cheating other people. We're all on that list. We have all of that in common with those who embrace LGBTQ identities and lifestyles. So we can look at them with humility as fellow sinners. As people who are part of the community of the fallen. The real community of human nature that unites us all. But look at the power of God in this passage Verse 11, such were some of you, but not anymore. Not any of these sins or addictions or lifestyles is greater than the power of Jesus Christ to give freedom. As I said at the beginning, he really does change people and make them new. We still struggle with sin, but it's no longer who we are. We now belong to Jesus and are core identity is now in him and not in what we used to be not in these sins even though we still battle with them i know i know of and i know many people personally who have been saved out of incredibly difficult desires contrary to god's sexual will i know Several, many men who have been saved out of bondage to homosexuality. And some of them still struggle with those desires. Some of them less so. Some of them are married with children. Some of them have have remained celibate. But I don't know any of them. I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know any of them who feels like they're faking it. And they've gotten a, a, a concession prize. They love Jesus and he's given them hope and he's given them joy and he's given them power to walk out this struggle. And that's what Paul's testifying to his ability here. Such were some of you, but Jesus changed all that. So my last word is this, we we don't have to be intimidated by this cultural tidal wave of confusion and disorder and corruption that's hitting us all in one way or another. Jesus really is greater. His spirit is able to save from it all. So let's commit ourselves to keep trusting him in this storm. To ask him to help us with our own sexual struggles, whether they're LGBTQ related or same sex or not same sex, different sex related Let's ask him to keep helping us. Let's ask him to help us be useful to him as he uses these struggles to humble people to even bring them into his kingdom. Amen.